Hello, thanks for checking out the KZMC podcast. My name is April Zaire, and I'm an associate pastor at KZMC. This podcast is a recording of sermon teachings from our 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship gatherings. We release a new episode every Tuesday. If you're looking to check out our Sunday mornings, you can find our live stream over on our YouTube channel on Kingsfield Zurich Mennonite Church. We'd also love to have you join us in person. You can find out all the details about our Sunday mornings on our website, kzmc.ca. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Connie Meyer. I am one of the pastors at Glencairn Church in Kitchener, a sister church to Zurich. Uh, My role is, uh, well, it's kind of a funky title, but it's Pastor of Outreach and Implementation. Try to say that to five times fast. Uh, It's quite a mouthful, but basically I'm the associate pastor uh, responsible for all the things that are outward facing in our church. And implementation is just that piece that means whatever our lead pastor doesn't want to do, give it to Connie. And uh, so I received that joyfully. And he's actually on sabbatical right now for three months. So um, so implementation has meant a lot more for me in this season while he's gone till December. So I can relate to you know, you as you transition seeking a lead pastor, how that can just be a challenge in those in-between times and, and what does God want to do in that season that's unique and fresh and new. So I'm really glad to be invited to be here this morning with you. Um, my husband could not be here this morning. He actually also does production at our church and he just got a new camera for the live stream so he's still been tweaking it with our volunteers and didn't feel good enough about just leaving it in their hands with the new technology so he's not here. We have three grown children, um, two of whom are married. We also have a grandbaby so it's pretty rich and full time of life for us as well. I just got called into this role um, of ministry almost two years ago and I had taught uh, grade seven and eight French immersion prior to that. So um, I can see on your face either you pity me or you uh, or my respect <laughs> level just went up in your eyes. I'm not sure which it is, but I trust that um, you might be easier to wrangle than 13 and 14 year olds. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, so this morning we're going to be looking into First uh, Kings 17. So if you have a, a Bible on your phone or a physical Bible, you can turn there. We'll get there in a moment. Um, it was a scripture that we went through in a staff retreat a couple weeks ago, and it just really struck me as maybe there's a word in here for Kingsfield, Zurich, this morning. There's a woman at our church who's a real encouragement to me, and her name is Marie. She's in her 80s. She is a real prayer warrior. And when she was in her 30s, and she was a young mom of six children, her husband died. She was widowed suddenly. But eventually she married again, and this time to a man who felt a call into ministry. And she served alongside him for a whole bunch of years until he died a number of years ago. And Marie is one of those people who just has this gift of encouragement and faith. And she'll often reach out to me, and out of the blue, by shooting me a text, yes, she texts in her 80s, Uh, that she's praying for me or that she offers a word of scripture that God might want me to hear. And I really appreciate her deeply. She always has this positive outlook on life. And in spite of some really significant health challenges she's going through, she's always quick to give glory to God 
and to speak of the nearness of Jesus and to give thanks for the many blessings in her life. And she's really like a person who's just a hero to me. And I often say, when I grow up, I want to be just like Marie. Um, because her life example is just something for me to emulate. And as Jesus followers, when we look into scripture, we see that it is God's story. And it's this account of how he's worked all through human history to bring people to himself. And Jesus' story, we know, culminates in the life of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And God's interactions with people all throughout Scripture all point to this larger redemption story between God and his people. And today we'll be looking at two characters in the Old Testament and how their human experiences intersect with these larger purposes of God. Anytime we encounter people in the scriptures, we can look for those places where their human experience mirrors our own. So in this way, we can see that our shared humanity today in the 21st century is instructive for us from these people from a long time ago. And I've really helped that way of looking at scripture really helpful as I find myself resonating with different characters in scripture in different seasons um, of life, and I can glean from their experience. So like my friend Marie, the characters today, Elijah and the widow, are people that we can emulate, people that we can learn from, because we look for our shared human experience and what they might have to teach us about how costly it can be to obey God and also the surprising ways that God provides for us when we do. So, like I said, we're in 1 Kings 17, and there's two characters, Elijah and the widow. And we're going to see that the ways that God invites both of them into costly compliance to his plans and the surprising ways that God provides for them. So let's just read the first chunk of that. I always read from the Net Bible. I'm just going to give a little plug for the Net Bible. If you're not familiar with that translation, highly recommend it. It's just got some great notes as a French teacher, and having taught in a second language for so long, I really appreciate the art and gift of translation. And the Net Bible gives the reasons for some of their uh, translation choices, if you're into that kind of thing. I know not everybody is, but I'll just say that as like a, you know, linguistics geek, I guess. Okay, 1 Kings 17, reading verse 1 and on. Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As certainly as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be no dew or rain in the years ahead unless I give the command. The Lord's message came to him, Leave here and travel eastward. Hide out in the Kareth Valley near the Jordan. Drink from the stream. I have already told the ravens to bring you food there. So he carried out the Lord's message. He went and lived in the Kareth Valley near the Jordan. The ravens would bring him food and meat each morning and evening, and he would drink from the stream. After a while, the stream dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The Lord's message came to him, get up, go to Zarephath in Sidonian territory and live there. I have already told a widow who lives there to provide for you. So he got up and went to Zarephath. Okay, so we'll just pause there. So the first half of our scripture focuses on Elijah, uh, the prophet and his own journey of faith in God. Elijah had just been appointed by God as a prophet for the Israelite people during the time of a king named Ahab. 
And this particular king in Israel history was perhaps the most evil king they had ever known. He married this woman Jezebel and colluded with her to promote the worship of Baal in addition to worshiping the God of Israel, Yahweh. You really gotta love that timing to be called as a prophet for the Israelites. Um, and as we look at how Elijah responded to this call as a prophet, it's really helpful for us to get a little context of um, this god, Baal. Baal, in Canaanite worship, he was this god of the storm, he was uh, the fertility god, and in this culture that was really dependent on rain-fed agriculture, appeasing this god to get rain was really important. And it was thought that if there was a dry summer, the god Baal was absent, and only when he returned would rain come again. And Baal was ultimately seen to have power over life and death itself through the provision or the withholding of rain. And more broadly, Baal was seen then as the god of fertility and infertility. He was a powerful deity in that culture. But the problem is that Israel was now beginning to simply add the worship of Baal to their worship of their God, the Lord, the one true God. And God wanted his people to worship him only and no other God. This drought that Elijah prophesies about is sent by God because of the evil actions of the people of Israel. So Elijah speaks on behalf of the one true God to this evil king, and he speaks the truth that rain is dependent on Yahweh alone, not Baal. The Lord is the only one with control over life and death, over fertility and infertility, not Baal. Elijah speaks with boldness to someone he knew would not receive his words well. And Elijah is challenging the king's worship of many gods instead of the one true God. And because of Elijah's obedience to speak the words that God gives him, his life is in danger. It's costly for him to comply with God. So God tells him, flee. Flee the presence of this evil king for his own safety. So what can we learn from this example of Elijah here? Well, first I noticed in this interaction with Abel, uh, Ahab, this evil king, that he flees. He doesn't stay and engage with this evil king. Like if you know the story in 1 Kings, and if you keep reading, even right in the next chapter, you're going to find Elijah pitted against 450 prophets of Baal in a showdown of these competing deities. He'll eventually confront single-handedly the powers of evil that exist in his culture, but not now. For now, he needs to get as far away as possible from this evil. And the place that God tells him to go is a place that is um, not inviting on any level. The place he is called to go to is called the Kareth Valley, which sounds lovely, but it's actually an inhospitable place. There's no food supply source there. To follow God's leading comes at a great cost to Elijah, because he might very well die. But God reassures Elijah that he has already told the ravens to bring him food there. So Elijah complies with his command, and Elijah demonstrates great trust in God to believe that God will take care of him. 
The ravens brought meat and bread twice daily, and Elijah could drink from the stream there. Another little interesting nugget to notice here is that God instructs ravens to provide for Elijah. They're not really lovely birds, are they? Uh, Well, first off, ravens in Jewish culture were considered unclean in Jewish law because they are birds that ate carrion, like dead meat, as well as berries and seeds. But also, little known fact, ravens are notorious for not even providing for their own young. This is even recorded in scripture in Job 38, 41. It says this when the Lord responds to Job's complaints. He says, God says, who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? So ravens do not take care of their young well. So it seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it, that they would be the ones who would provide for Elijah's needs. Ravens were not a bird we would expect to provide for Elijah's needs in this harsh landscape. And we see in this narrative that where and how God will provide for him are both done in surprising ways. He tells Elijah to go to an inhospitable space and to find his daily sustenance from an unexpected source, the ravens. Then eventually, even the drought reaches Elijah as the stream dries up. And here again, I find God's choices and what he does interesting. Uh, God does not decide to provide miraculously for water there, like he did for the bread and the food. The stream dries up, it's time to move on. And God tells him instead to move to the Sidonian territory, where he's already told a widow to provide for him. God has gone ahead of Elijah again to provide for him. But notice where God calls Elijah to go. This is Sidon. And Sidon is the region of Israel's enemies. Sidon is located in Canaan, in the very heart of Baal worship territory. Elijah already fled his Baal worshiping king. Now he's to go into the very place where Baal worship is practiced. And this second time that Elijah is faced with the possibility of death, he's commanded to flee to Sidon, another foreign, hostile place. And God this time will provide through a widow. Like I know from my friend Marie, widows are not well-off people. Um, And in that day, even more so, there was no life insurance if they had it to help provide in the sudden death of a spouse. The widows wore the lowest of the low in terms of the socioeconomic Uh, ladder. They didn't have a source of income, but they relied on their own family to provide for them. So against all logic, Elijah needed to trust God deeply that he would come through to provide for him in miraculous ways. And again, we see in Elijah's story an unlikely place and an unlikely means of provision for his need. So let's pause at this point before we head on to the second half of the narrative to reflect on Elijah. Elijah faced death twice, and he was told by God what to do. He complied with God's commands, even though it was hard. It was costly compliance. And God came through both times with really surprising 
provision through ravens and through a widow of a foreign national enemy. So what are the implications for us as we look at this story of Elijah? Well, first, I think the story of Elijah is a a good example of discernment, really. He had to discern right from the beginning whether to engage with the evil powers in his land or to flee. And in this case, he fled. This takes great discernment because there's times when we need to engage with evil, but there are times to flee. So are there sources of evil in our lives that we need to flee from? Perhaps for some of us, we need to flee from some of the sources of our entertainment, the movies we watch, particular Netflix series, maybe some of the content we consume on social media platforms. We know in our hearts that some of the content in those spaces are not good for us. We need to flee. Perhaps for others, fleeing from evil means not participating in conversations that are negative or derogatory or gossip. We need to flee. Perhaps for others of us, it means stopping our incessant greed for more things or more experiences and just rest from shopping or frantic activity. We need to flee. Second, I think from Elijah's story, we notice that his costly compliance to the commands of God allowed him to see surprising provision from God's hand. We need to have our eyes opened to recognize the way God takes care of us in unexpected places and through unexpected people. Often seeing these things can be as simple as shifting our mindset to see our situations through God's eyes and look for his provision in our life. And for myself, I think of a time that God provided for my family in a time of need. My husband had been out of work after the economic downturn of 2008 for quite a while. And I had been trained as a teacher and I was supply teaching at that time just to help with my part-time seminary studies. And I had hoped that when I completed seminary to find a full-time pastoral role, but God had a different way of providing for our family. A full-time permanent teaching position was essentially offered to me right then in our small town of Elmira. So in 2010, when this happened, permanent contracts were not given out very often. And even though I really had no desire to teach at that time, uh, it was obvious to me and my husband that this was God's provision for us in our need. I needed to have my eyes opened to see the different ways he provides. And as well, I needed to give thanks for that, even though it wasn't my first choice of how I would have liked my life to go at that point in time. I'd hoped to be a pastor, but it would still take another 10 years and growing in contentment in order for that to happen for me. So sometimes we need to have our eyes opened to the ways that God provides. Often he uses unexpected people or unexpected means to meet our needs. And Elijah followed God when it seemed impossible, when it seemed illogical to do so. He trusted God in what he said, and he saw God's surprising provision each time. 
The next part of the narrative then focuses on the faith journey of the widow. So let's read that scripture, continuing from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. When he went through the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. He called out to her, please give me a little water in a cup so I can take a drink. And as she went to get it, he called out to her, please bring me a piece of bread. And she said, as certainly as the Lord your God lives, I have no food except for a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. Right now I'm gathering a couple of sticks for a fire. Then I'm going to go going home to make one final meal for my son and myself. And after we have eaten that, we will die of starvation. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do as you planned. But first, make me a small cake and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel has said. The jar of flour will not be empty and the jug of oil will not run out until the day the Lord makes it rain on the surface of the ground. She went and did, as Elijah told her. There was always enough food for Elijah and for her and her family. The jar of flour was never empty, and the jug of oil never ran out, in keeping with the Lord's message that he had spoken through Elijah. After this, the son of the woman who owned the house got sick. His illness was so severe that he could no longer breathe. She asked Elijah, why, prophet, have you come to me to confront me with my sin and kill my son. And he said to her, hand me your son. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him down on his bed. Then he called out to the Lord, oh Lord my God, are you also bringing disaster on this widow I am staying with by killing her son? He stretched out over the boy three times and called out to the Lord, oh Lord my God, please let this boy's breath return to him. The Lord answered Elijah's prayer. The boy's breath returned to him, and he lived. Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upper room to the house, and handed him to his mother. Elijah then said, see, your son is alive. The woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a prophet and that the Lord's message really does come through you. So Elijah meets this woman and persuades this woman to take a step of faith. Beyond just a drink of water, he asks for bread from her. And Elijah tells her to feed him first. This is really costly for her to do because she must choose between feeding herself and her son or feeding the prophet. But notice how she responds to Elijah. As surely as the Lord your God lives. She lives in a culture of Baal worshipers and she has heard of Elijah's God, but she doesn't know him. She doesn't believe in him herself. And as far as she's concerned, his God is just another God among the multiple, multiple gods. And this God of Elijah in her eyes is the one who is responsible for the famine that will cause her and her son's imminent death. And I really think it's interesting to contrast the raven's provision for Elijah from the widows. The ravens as I said earlier, they were notorious for not providing well for their young, yet God used them to provide for Elijah. Now we have a widow who, of course, as any good mother would, wants to provide for her son. She's the very opposite of the raven in the way that she parents. And Elijah speaks God's word to her that if she complied with his request, 
God would provide in miraculous ways for her and for her son. It's a costly request for her too. But this request comes with a promise of God's provision. So she does what's asked of her and God miraculously provides for her. Her costly compliance has led to God's blessing. She does not yet personally believe in Elijah's God, but she receives a blessing anyway. Her compliance to the prophet's request has led to this blessing of flour and oil that doesn't end for her and her son to keep them alive. Then if she wasn't already in a tough spot, crisis strikes on a deeper level and her son gets sick and dies. She's faced with death a second time, but notice the widow's reaction here. She blames the prophet and she blames God for his death as punishment for her own sin. Why have you come to confront me with my sin? kill my son. And this way of thinking fits with ancient Near East culture. You must appease the gods to win their favor. And clearly, her own sin has caused the gods to be angry. And she believes that she must pay the price. She assumes that Elijah's God deals with people in the same way her God, Baal, does. Her sins have caused Elijah's God to be angry at her and he inflicts punishment on her by killing her only son. Well, at least that's her understanding of how judgment works. This is the end of the story for her. The blessing of unending flour and oil is long forgotten in light of the loss of her own son. She blames the prophet, she blames God. So let's compare her reaction to that of Elijah. Elijah fled for his life from Ahab and the ravens fed him. He fled that area when the stream dried up and came to the widow. And he, like the widow, faced death twice and both times was rescued by God. Elijah also knows that this famine has been brought on by God himself. He told Ahab this at the very beginning of the story. The evil king, Israel's disobedience in worshiping Baal has led to God's judgment in this form of drought and famine. Only God can turn this one around. And here now, with the death of the widow's son, Elijah knows that this too is from God's hand. But, but, instead of stopping there, like the widow does, it becomes the fuel for his prayer. Elijah leans into God in this moment. His prayer is repeated. His prayer is desperate. He does not give up until God revives the boy and brings him back to life. The widow then responds in an act of belief. Having her son returned to her alive allows her to exclaim then, Elijah is a prophet and God does speak. She finally believes in the God of Elijah. She fed the prophet and received miraculous provision of flour and oil. She was blessed for complying to the prophet's request, but it clearly was not enough for her to put her own trust and faith in Elijah's God. It took the crisis of her son dying and God's miraculous provision again to trust in Elijah's God for herself. For the widow, she first had to trust the prophet in a costly way in order to receive the blessing of unexpected provision. She was facing, facing death in making her last meal, but needed to give it away instead to the prophet. 
She received the blessing of flour and oil. Then she faced death again when her son died, and she was at a loss and blamed God. She was done with Elijah. She was done with God. Elijah prayed, and her son was restored to life. And then she came into full belief, belief that Elijah was God's prophet and a personal belief in his God. So what can we learn from the widow? Well, her faith journey, I think, is one that we can learn from. Obedience before blessing, blessing before belief. Her journey into faith is something that we can learn from, both for those of us exploring faith in Jesus for ourselves, or for those of us wanting to share the life-giving message of Jesus to others around us. Her example makes me think of one of the followers of Jesus, Peter. And you might know that Peter was a fisherman who immediately after hearing Jesus speak and his invitation to follow him, dropped everything and followed this Jesus. He essentially knew nothing about what it meant to follow Jesus, yet he did it. It's crazy stuff. And if you look in uh, the first three gospels, but like Luke 5, for example, read about it for yourself. You will see how little Peter knew about Jesus and that he had to go on to follow him. But he acted first. He obeyed the call to follow Jesus in his life without knowing where it would lead. He would see miracles and be taught in private from this amazing rabbi. And it wouldn't be until much later in his own faith journey that he recognized Jesus as the long-promised Messiah. He believed fully in Jesus much later. And Luke 9 records that where Peter affirms, okay, Jesus, you are the Messiah. The widow's story, like Peter's, is kind of, it can be a model for us of how to follow Jesus. So if you're new to exploring faith, step out. Do something to test and see if God is worth following. Call out to him in prayer for yourself. Do an act that emulates the way of Jesus, like being generous to the poor or being hospitable to a stranger. Read about and study the ways that Jesus acted during his, during his life here on earth and test it out in your own life. You may be surprised to see the ways that God blesses you for taking that kind of risk. Act first in the way of Jesus and plan to be surprised on what he can do in your own heart and in your own life. These are great first steps to see if God is trustworthy, if he's somebody you want to entrust your life to. And if you're somebody who's walked with Jesus for a while, the widow's example can speak to you too. If you're longing to introduce those in your sphere of influence to Jesus, reorient yourself to the model shown here, obedience, blessing, belief. How often do we want to start from this place of trying to convince others to believe in Jesus, that they need to know about him and God's plan of salvation first? But I think the widow's example is opposite of that. She took steps of compliance first, and then faith came later. So our role in the lives of those who don't follow Jesus can be to celebrate and champion all the small or the big ways that people act in line with the way of Jesus. We can celebrate any actions that are Jesus-like 
in the people around us, like generosity or service or putting other people's needs first. We can nurture these budding faith expressions, even if they wouldn't necessarily associate it yet with the way of Jesus. And as we walk with them, we can point out to them how they are beginning to live into the way of Jesus. We can help build these bridges to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, nurturing these seeds of faith first and seeing belief come later is the way that we see faith modeled in this biblical text. So as we think about introducing those in our lives to Jesus, we often start, don't we, with that belief piece. If they just understood who he was and what he did for us through his life, death, and resurrection, they would believe and know the blessing of eternal life here and now and would follow in obedience. And please hear me correctly, I'm not saying that theology is not important. I'm not saying it's not important to teach and to communicate, but sometimes it's just not the place to start. And the example of the widow turns this way of thinking completely upside down. She obeyed first. She followed in the way of God without even knowing him yet. And God blessed her. And only later did she come to acknowledge the God of Elijah. So compliance to the ways of God is costly. We saw this for Elijah. We saw this for the widow. What are some of the maybe illogical actions that God might invite you to do and to trust him fully for the outcome? Where's those places of discernment you need in your own life of fleeing from evil rather than engaging? What might be God asking of you this week that seems costly. Ask the Spirit to reveal to you and follow through in action. Because God comes through with surprising provision. Elijah got food and water in unexpected places and from unexpected sources. The widow also received blessing in the form of unending flour and oil and her own son's life, restored because she said yes to the prophet's request. Do you have your eyes open to the ways that God might be providing for your needs in this season? Ask the Spirit to show you how he's taking care of you. God may do something surprising when we act. There may be some other surprising gift on the other side of obedience that we just can't see yet. We don't act in obedience to get the gift, but our good God often wants to pour that out on us to show us he is real, he's near, he's concerned for us, just like he was for Elijah and the widow. Let me pray with you. We're grateful, Lord, for biblical humans that we can see a shared human experience and we can learn from them, we can emulate. Lord, we long for you to turn our hearts dispositions that we're open to saying yes to those things that you ask of us even when they are costly, even when they are hard. Show us those areas where there is evil we need to flee. And open our eyes, Lord, as well, to the ways that you want to surprise us with your provision. 
forgive us for ignoring those things or turning our back on those places that you are longing to provide for us and allow us to have a new spirit of gratitude and receptivity to your ways of providing for us that might look different than what we had hoped for or what we wanted. So we trust you in these things. Would you draw us more deeply into trust because we know that we need your help even to be able to trust you to do this work in us. Thank you that you're a good God. Thank you that because of Jesus, we can know that you are a good God. And it's in his name that we agree together as we pray.